0: I think it's easy for folks to say, oh, it's politics. I'm not, you know, I'm not that kind of political. I don't get involved in that way. Nothing's going to change. We've got to change that. There was a part of me that bought into that narrative, right? That's not how we're going to create real change through politics. But actually, there's a certain amount of change that can only be done in that way. I'm Lexi. And I'm Zach.
1: And you're listening to Proximity a podcast where we examine the forces that draw us closer and those that push us apart, one story at a time. We can't create a podcast concerned with the forces that draw us closer together and those that pull us apart without confronting politics. So today we're focusing on someone who is running for one of the most recognizable local public offices in our country and talking about her vision and plans for reimagining America's largest city.
0: I'm a first-generation college student, Latina, single mother of two, who has spent her entire career working in community to overcome the inequities and the inequalities and disparities that low-income, marginalized communities of color face. That's Diane Morales.
1: Diane's lived experience as a woman of color in New York City and her professional experience as a teacher, a foster care worker, and most recently spending the past decade serving as the CEO of an anti-poverty organization in the South Bronx. All of this has led Diane to this moment where she's running for mayor of New York City. And this is a big deal. If she is elected, she will not only be the first Latina to hold that office, but she will be New York City's first female mayor. Now, Diane is not a career politician. Diane is someone who got tired of accepting the norms of broken systems that have hurt so many people. So she decided she wanted to do something about it, getting her name on the ballot so she can ensure a society where no one is left behind.
0: So I haven't spent decades either doing the strategic political moves to position myself like to, you know, that's my next move, or um, I don't have the war chest that um, career politicians accumulate over time. Um, And I don't have the name recognition because I've been working in community. I haven't been working with a platform that's that level. So really for somebody like me to become what the chattering class refers to as a viable candidate, um, you really have to do a lot. The work is different and the work is harder, I think, than for folks who are career politicians.
1: And since Diane is not a career politician, I asked her if she could give us a bit of her backstory and the experiences that have shaped her into the woman and the candidate she
0: is today. I'm the youngest of three girls. I grew up in um, in Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn. My parents are both Puerto Rican. They each came here sort of separately as young adults or teenagers, Um, and so they met here. I actually grew up in a household with my grandmother, my, my mother's mother, who lived with us the entire time. One of the stories I don't share that often is actually that I shared a room and a bed with her until the day I left home for college. And she was in fact the one who we called mommy and my mother was mamita, which is like little mom, big mom, little mom. My parents were very focused. They they totally bought into like the American dream. I think my house was a pretty typical sort of first generation Latino household. We were the island, the rest stop, the transition point for anybody sort of coming here from the island. For anybody kind of like at a sort of turning point in their lives, coming back from the military, trying to figure out next steps, newly married couples, newly divorced people, um, there was always someone else living in our home. I don't think we ever really questioned it. It was just kind of like, that's what we do for each other, right? That's how we, we just, we, if we have and others need You provide and you do what you can. And so I I didn't realize it at the time, but I think that indoctrinated something in me about community and and community wasn't always a blood relative. It just was community, right? And you just, if you have a small piece of something and someone needs you, you, you break off a piece and you share that, right? And I think that mentality actually really contributed to my becoming someone who works in community and with community and for community. I don't think I realized that actually, or could really articulate that until I would say maybe when I, as a single mom, got my first home with my kids, we replicated that dynamic. And I always had somebody living with us. And that was when I started calling those folks chosen family. So my children grew up with this concept of chosen family, right? That it's not always blood, but it's the, the people that you choose to bring into your community and the sort of reciprocity that exists there that's not always, you know, They weren't always giving us a roof in return, but the the kind of support um, that they were giving us was critical to me in particular as a single mom.
1: You can feel the influence this experience has over Diane's belief that opportunity is created when we take responsibility, not just for ourselves, but for our neighbors and our communities. And as she grew up, this also made her acutely aware of the flaws in the city's institutions and systems, like schools, that didn't seem to be serving everyone in the community equally.
0: My parents were very focused on education. So I realized as I moved up the ladder, the educational ladder, that there were fewer and fewer kids from the neighborhood and fewer and fewer kids that looked like me. And the truth of it is, I didn't feel that special. I didn't, you know, I wasn't, I didn't feel so much smarter than everybody else or so much more worthy. And, I, you know, you start to question because I knew that I was in accessing increasingly elite institutions, right? I went to Stuyvesant High School here in New York City actually, Stuyvesant was the first time I really realized, oh, we're poor. Like, that was the first time that became clear to me what I didn't have. Up until then, I was living in a pretty happy bubble. But, you know, I I, I became aware of that. And I, although, again, I didn't have the critical analysis, I knew that there was something that I wanted to do to help change that um, and to make, to sort of level the playing field. So I spent the the first part of my career kind of really searching for what that entry point was, I think, how to do it. That's how I I did, you know, as a special ed teacher and then I was a foster care worker and story I I always tell about the special ed piece was I didn't have any, I wasn't trained. I didn't have any, you know, experience, but I was so enthusiastic and I had so much energy. Um, And I, so I'd show up every day with like all kinds of ideas and I'd go to my assistant principal and be like, how about this? What do you think about this? And, And one day she just said to me, I don't care what you do with those kids. Just keep them in the classroom, keep the door shut and keep them quiet. That was a pivotal moment for me. In that moment, I remember thinking, if our children's lives are in the hands of folks who feel this way about them, they're never gonna make it. And I have to figure out how to do something about it. What I knew that day was that I wanted to figure out how to come back in a position over her (laughs) so that I could do something about that. That sort of started things for me. That moment helped propel
1: Diane into a career committed to advocating for neighborhoods, communities, and people who the city's safety net failed. And while she was able to accomplish a lot in her various roles, she realized recently how much more of an impact she can make if she's on the executive policymaking side of things.
0: The system's so broken. Everything that I've done in my career that was successful, I've built some programs that have been models citywide models but for the most part every time i built something i was fighting against the system i was building a workaround i was looking for the loopholes because the the system was such that the things that i was trying to do weren't supposed to happen all the work that i've done was tinkering around the edges right it wasn't really getting at the systemic institutionalized challenges that perpetuate these disparities and inequities that's really what i want to do
1: I know that there are a lot of issues that are listed on your website. Can you talk to me about some of the ones that maybe are at the forefront right now that you want to address?
0: Sure. I mean, I think, you know, the hot topic of the day is this sort of policing issue, right? And um, the disproportionate violence that impacts Black and brown communities, that impacts LGBT and trans communities, that impacts, um, you know, women who are subjected to domestic violence. This is a serious Problem. And the thing about it that's more challenging is that I think that the system is working exactly the way it was intended to. Um, when you think about the roots of policing, it was about protecting the white man's property, you know, in the, in the slave patrols, it was about keeping black people, you know, oppressed, and feeling like they could not overcome That was the intention and it continues to operate exactly in that way. And so I really think that it's important for us to take some bold steps to address that. And for me, it reflects a real uh, need for us to change who represents us, who leads us and, and what that person sort of looks like and comes from. And so, for me, um, you know, one of the things I called for a little while ago was to the defunding of the police and, and the moving away of the school safety officers, which I don't think make our kids feel safe. My kids both went to public schools, and they never felt safer. I didn't feel safer walking in. I also think that we need to think about, you know, so much of the, what police are called to respond to is not in their lane. So much of what they're dealing with are mental health issues. Are substance abuse issues, our homelessness issues, they're not trained for that. They're not the right people for that. And they certainly don't make those people feel safe. You know, uh, There's a difference between pu- policing and public safety. And so I really think that um, we need to invest in communities and the, the real needs of communities and what, the things that communities really need to keep them safe and move away from this you know, criminalization, this militarized criminalization of poverty state so that is a, is a big part of my focus. The other thing I'll say, and then I'll, I'll, I'll stop, is, is women. I mean, you know, as a single mom who has taken care of my house, household, provided financially, navigated the education system, taken care of my parents, not been paid the same wages as my male, white, white male counterparts. I think I have a very clear understanding of what the city needs to do to elevate women socially, economically, and politically. And I think that if we do that effectively, the entire city is going to benefit because women take care of their communities, women take care of their families, and in this instance, that the old saying that a rising tide lifts all boats could not possibly be more true. And so I wanna center women. I wanna center women of color in my agenda. Um, again, because I think if we, if we do right by and we give justice to women of color, the entire city will do better and we'll start to finally begin to move towards a place where we might live up to the rhetoric of being the greatest city in the world.
1: about Diane's vision for how New York City can support all of its citizens equally, and how it applies to the rest of the country, after a short break.
0: Hi guys, it's Zach. Thanks for tuning in to Proximity. If you're enjoying today's episode, we invite you to listen to the other episodes we have available. And if you know anyone who might enjoy our show, please spread the word. At this point, the only reason we're making this thing is because we can. So it means a lot to know it's getting out there. And if you have any recommendations for stories or people to talk to, don't hesitate to reach out. Now back to our episode with Diane.
1: Before the break, Diane was touching on some of the main issues that she is focusing on during her campaign for mayor. Primarily addressing policing and prioritizing policies that will empower and uplift women. Now, one of the reasons I was excited to bring Diane on is because of the particularly heightened awareness and the present reminder of how important local politics is. And as someone who is running for the most prominent local public office in this country, I wanted to hear her talk about the significance of local government and the change it can enact
0: one size does not fit all, right? And so when I talk about the changes that I think need to happen in terms of policing, for example, I think one of the things I recognize is that the solutions that I am proposing for New York City are not necessarily the same solutions that might work in St. Petersburg, Florida, right? I don't know that community. And I think there's something incredibly valuable listening to and working in partnership with the community that you're trying to serve, right? One of the things that my experience has taught me is that the people who are closest to the problem are also often closest to the solution. And if you, if we're able to actually bring local folks to the table as partners, they're going to be so much more invested in that solution being successful, right? So they're going to work in tandem and in in partnership with making that successful and you know to me as an organizer as an executive it's such common sense that sometimes i don't even think it's supposed i I need to articulate it because i just make the assumption that everybody gets it but that's not actually true people are actually calling for a radical reimagining of how our cities and communities run, how we live together, how we care for each other, how we keep each other safe. They're calling for that. I just can't help but imagine what possibilities would be open to us if we invited them to the table and worked together.
1: Yes. So, so you've talked about how these systems are operating exactly how they're supposed to because they were always designed to be oppressive. And so that's why we need this whole reimagining the system. But with that, I think that uh, you also shared something about how you realized that policy is what really matters. Like policy change is what matters. So, like reimagining, like having the authority to reimagine, restructure, make change. Can you kind of like speak to that more as like a general principle as well? Sure,
0: sure. I mean, I think you know policy slash budget. Right. Um, our our budgets reflect our values. Where we prioritize investing dollars is a direct reflection. Of what we think is most important and what we value most. You know, when we know that there's a, a homelessness issue, when we know that food insecurity has tripled since the beginning of the COVID crisis, and we're not prioritizing that, when we know that the COVID crisis and the sheltering in place has done more to increase the disparities in access to education than just about anything. Um, in my lifetime, and we're not investing in figuring that out. And we're not even talking about it. It speaks volumes, the numbers tell a story. And I think the people are hearing that really clearly. And so, you know, policy is one thing, but actually putting your money where your mouth is, is another, right? As a as a single mom, I can tell you that I sacrificed anything and everything so that my kids could get you know, the educational supports that they needed, because guess what? The public school system was not meeting their needs. They both had learning differences and had IEPs and the public school system wasn't working. And so, you know, I sacrificed all kinds of things. When I did my budget, the first thing was, you know, what do I need to set aside for them for school? The other things came later. But more than just where the money goes, the barriers
1: to creating change also often come from those who hold elected office.
0: You know, it's the folks that tell us like, well yeah, we're working on it. it. you know, don't get so you know, don't get so upset. Stop, you know, or even Cuomo saying, stop protesting, you already got what you wanted. What are you talking about? Why are you so angry? We just gave you that. Like be patient now and, and wait another several hundred years before you make the next move. There isn't a shared sense of urgency around that, right? But the, the black people's lives are on the line, literally. Not this is not like a figurative thing. Like people are being murdered, right? And if that's not enough of a clarion call to you know to get folks to stand up and listen and act differently, I don't know what could be. But the reality of it is that we are seeing something, right? We are seeing something that I have never seen before in my life, and I, I think it is. Uh, reflective of a unique opportunity. It's reflective, I think, of a, um, of, again, like the intersection of, of crises that's unprecedented. And in that window, I think there is an opportunity. And I'm I'm hoping that the movement will take advantage of that.
1: If you could reimagine this like dream scenario, this ideal scenario, what would that look like?
0: In my sort of radical reimagining of New York City, everybody's succeeding and everybody's benefiting because I, I really believe that we can only do as well as sort of the worst person in our cities or in our communities. We're just inextricably linked. Now, if you think about this this COVID crisis, right, and all of the people that were suddenly designated as essential workers, they're our lowest paid, our least protected our least respected folks, the delivery guys, the bodega workers, you know, the transit staff, and yet in designating them as essential workers, we acknowledged, literally, that we could not operate the city without them, that all of our, our existence is inextricably linked. Now what would it look like if we actually cared for that segment of the community? What would it look like if they were actually being paid wages to live on and to live in dignity, right? Not just to like scrape by, but to live in dignity. People are not asking to become wealthy all of a sudden. They're really just asking to be able to make enough. Schools that have, you know, enough resources to provide for their students, right? Mental health support, counselors, nurses, youth development specialists, recreational activities. What would it look like for us to, you know, take money away from this policing state and provide for the enrichment and flourishing of our kids, right? The average person does not commit a crime out of pure maliciousness. It is born out of need. And so if we were to create a city where we were really addressing people's basic human needs and then, you know, work our way backward into looking at, okay, so do we still need policing and what does that look like? It's flipping it all on its head. And again, to my statement about the values and budgets, it's prioritizing a different vision. It's recognizing that we need housing and health care and quality education and food on the table, everybody needs that and everybody has a right to that.
1: How do you see a way of kind of like people who either don't want to get in politics or who are so polarized politically, how do you see a way of, I don't know, like, like,
0: is it necessary to build a bridge? Is it necessary to bring
1: people along? Like, what do you do there?
0: Yeah, yeah. It's a great question. And the answer to that is sort of a long, complicated and comprehensive road, right? But yes, of course, I do see a need to build a bridge. I do see a need. I mean, we talk about national stuff for a hot second. um, You know, the division and the divisiveness that has taken hold over the country over the last four years has taken us so far back, right? It's not that that didn't exist before, because I'm not Pollyannish, and I don't believe that it has been fueled in a whole different kind of way. And it has been given permission to exist in the open air in a way that it hadn't been in a really long time. So on some level, um, it's good to know what you're dealing with. So it's good to be able to see that and and know that it's there. Um, But to me, the next step is to figure out how you actually do in fact, build a unifying conversation. Um, I think the, At the core of that is is humanity, but the reality of it is that that I I believe that racism has so much to do with that, right? The way that racism and white supremacy in particular have worked is by pitting low-income white folks against black folks, right? And so, you know, it's the only thing that low-income white folks have that helps them feel superior, Right. And so there's this whole thing that feeds into that narrative for them. And they hold on to it and cling to it desperately, even when it goes against their own self-interests. And so really we have to be willing to tackle the racism issue to start to unify. And there's a lot of different ways you could do that. But one of the first things that, that I think about is like, you know, the way we educate our kids, right? Our our whole education system, the curriculum, what the lessons that our kids are taught are also deeply ingrained in maintaining racism and white supremacy. And so until we start teaching in a way that allows for all of these different experiences, for our children, our students to understand that, and in a way that allows for, yes, that was terrible, and we're we're going to do better, right? Just, you know, having that legacy doesn't have to damn us to continue to repeat the same mistakes, We do have to find a way that people can have this conversation, understand the reality and not feel threatened, right? It's not a a me or you scenario, understanding that it's a me and you scenario. And again, understanding that actually you can benefit if I do better. Because if I'm doing better, you know, I'm going to contribute to the economy. I'm going to be less likely to commit a crime because I don't have the need. I'm going to be much more likely to engage civically in supporting and uplifting my community. I mean, there's, it's, there's a ripple effect, a self-fulfilling, positive cycle.
1: I asked Diane what it's like being in politics right now and specifically running for office during this unprecedented time. Between the COVID 19 pandemic and the social uprising in this country?
0: I declared my candidacy last fall. At the time, I was thinking about like this whole different life that I was gonna be leading and like, what is it like to be in politics? And what is, you know, and am I a real candidate and am I a real politician, right? Because I don't feel like any of those things. And so I stepped down in January and sort of started to try to get my like bearings. And then this happened, right? The pandemic, um, the COVID pandemic. And then you know all of this—the George Floyd thing happened—and I feel like you know the thing I've been saying is the pandemic of racism was also sort of highlighted in an unprecedented way, at least in my lifetime. Um, and then you had all of these people that, because of the pandemic of COVID, were housebound or unemployed, and so you get a lot more attention on the racism issue and you have a lot more ability for people to come out and protest because they don't have to go to work or whatever, right? And so as hard as that has been because it suspended traditional campaign activities, the truth of it is that I also feel like, oh, this is exactly the right time for me to be doing what I'm doing because these are the issues that I've been talking about my entire life and people are paying attention and there's an energy around it there's a diversity to the coalition of people that have come out to support the abolition of racism, the abolition of, you know, the, the prison state and, and all of this. And so it just it feels like exactly the right time and exactly the right place.
1: Still, even though this moment speaks to issues Diane has always been tackling. She and her campaign are still facing a unique uphill battle due to the chronic disregard for women of color that's manifesting for her as an erasure of any legitimacy she has as a candidate. I asked if she'd be willing to share more about that.
0: Timely. It just happened today. A Politico reporter wrote a piece about someone, a a woman of color who I respect and admire um, deeply, who is considering entering the race. She's in a different pool. She does commentary on one of the news channels. And the piece talked about her as being the potential woman of color, progressive woman of color in the race. Um, there, is a, there is this sort of erasure that happens among that sort of what I, I refer to as the chattering class, um, these, the media and the press of people who they don't deem viable or they don't deem qualified. And so we're, you know, someone like me is trying to overcome so many additional and different obstacles to just be seen in this race.
1: Mm. Have, have you had conversations with potential voters who would support you, who also have had these experiences their entire lives?
0: Yeah, a lot of conversations, actually. So one of the things that's really interesting and new for me is, you know, when I was at Washington Square Park the other day, I was out for a, a rally and a demonstration and a march, and I had these three young people come up to me I'd never met before and one of them goes are you Diane Morales and I was like yeah um how do you know mm. and and she was just she was gushing she was like I've been following your candidacy you have no idea what it means to me to have to see a woman of color that looks like me in this race and it's just so you know and, and in those moments you realize kind of what this represents right and I I've always said that this was bigger than me, that this race, me being in this race, is not about me. But in those moments, it brings that point home in such a way that um, I'm aware of of kind of the honor to have this opportunity um, and the responsibility that goes along with that.
1: As we're wrapping up here, I wanted to ask you, what is the bottom line that you would want people to walk away with from this conversation?
0: Understanding that a just society is possible and that we don't have to be restricted by the way things have always been done. I think the idea of suspending disbelief and really, really leaning in and getting involved. And I think that this is the time for us to come together in in ways that we haven't before.
1: And to any listeners that are New Yorkers, Diane
0: just wants to say, I am a, an average New Yorker who has spent my entire life working to uplift and support those communities that have been most marginalized and oppressed. And that as a professional who has done that, and as a first generation, single mom, woman of color, my experiences are much more directly reflective and connected to that of the average New Yorker. And that I believe that now is time for us to kind of reject the old ways and the old norms of doing things and to bring people into elected office that really reflect what's in the best interest of our communities and to bring people into office that are going to genuinely partner with communities to build and radically reimagine the New York City that we all deserve to have and can live in.
1: This has been our episode with Diane Morales. We hope you enjoyed it. You'll find the link to Diane's website in our show description, where you can follow along and learn more about her. Check back next week for a new episode of Proximity.
0: And thank you for tuning in.